I can hardly believe that I have just finished my fifth conversation with Inman Matthew. And this podcast series is, or each season, has me in five conversations five times. So we are approaching the end. And luckily for me, Matthew and Inman are in my circle. They are kin. And I will continue to be having conversations with them separately, together, in other settings with other people. And for that, I am very, very grateful. But I have a feeling that you will soon be able to find both of them, either separately or together, in other settings in other podcasts going more visible sharing their their onlyness to quote Nile for a merchant we speak about place and life I think place is probably the center point of our meanders today, even though we both start and end with a gift culture. So, have fun with us and stay tuned because soon there will be a season three with five new conversation partners. I've been uh, listening our last podcast before two o'clock. Mm -hmm. Did like you finish it? it? Uh, no, I couldn't, but halfway through. Uh, a bit more than half, three quarters through. Yeah. And uh, it, reminded, it reminded me of a story that I would like to tell you today. Go ahead. Please. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because it has to do with the gift mm. that we were talking. When I was, um, well, probably since, since I was 10, nine or 10 years old. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if you both or the audience uh, know that in Spain, there is a birthday that we celebrate and also a name day that we celebrate, right? My name day in Spain is the 8th of December. And it's a bank holiday in, in Spain, in the whole country. Even in South America, it's a bank holiday too. Um, you know, it's the Virgin Mary. Hey. <laughs> yes, the Inmaculada. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my grandma, since, since more or less I was nine or 10 years old, um, gave me a gift um, for my name day, which was a box of chocolates, bonbon. But I don't like chocolate. And she knows, she knew. 
<laughs> that I didn't like, and I, I don't like chocolate. So for years and years and years, I always got the, this gift from her and, um, I never, it never occurred to me to ask her why, <laughs> or, or even what the fuck, <laughs> you know, uh, it never, I don't know. I, 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 I think, or, or the feeling I got is that I was respectful with her wish that giving me this box of chocolate bonbons and it wasn't something that she would do for another, for the rest of my brothers and sisters so it was something for me that it was special for her to do that and and so I never it never occurred to me to ask her why you do that to me why you give me something that I don't like and you know that I don't like but when I was 33 or 32 I wasn't living in, in San Luca anymore and, and, but we, uh, she always got us together for the 8th of December to celebrate my name day. Um, so we, we were there, big family, friends of family, husbands, children. So a big, big gathering that day. And she gave me the box of chocolate <laughs> of and. So I opened it and for some reason that I'm not sure, I went and asked that year, I, I did ask her um, and it was, it was a beautiful answer. She said uh, something like, I do know that you don't like chocolates, but because you don't like chocolates, you are the only one who are going to open the box here and share it with everyone. And yesterday I was remembering, and today <laughs> when I was listening to uh, our last episode, um, I, I somehow it taught me about leadership about, and about relationship and how a present, a gift is not just for you. It's, it's, if you share, it's even more valuable. So I, I was remembering today uh, when I was listening that the gift, uh, talking when we were in the part that we were talking about the gift economy and how spread is even when we don't see it that much uh, or recognize it that much. But um, with that present, she, 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 for me, she did something, she did, she did that, that she was putting people together with that present, with that gift, uh, bringing people together and sharing, uh, something that everyone valued, the bonbons, even though I didn't like them, but she was sure that doing that somehow was the only way to, for her to, to bring everyone together. And I wanted to share it with you. <laughs> yeah, I've been, yeah, it is. And I've been thinking a lot about gifts and receiving 
as well. And I also listened to our episode 43. Mm -hmm. Um, I really enjoyed it. And there's a lot. There's a lot to it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that stands out on hearing that story, which is more of a uh, broader reflection, it's not even necessarily about wait, that story. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, my audio there's, awful. Yeah, it's it's. There's a click. It, yeah. I've been hearing that from all of you, and it's really distracting. I was hoping you Okay, yeah. It me. sounds as if you're clicking a ballpot pen. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to leave Zoom and come back with earbuds and see if that fixes anything. My computer is telling me things don't make sense, but it didn't. So, um, okay. Back in a moment. Okay. Yeah, you know, I saw it was you doing that with the click. Yeah, and I thought it was... Somebody, you know, it's like, who's, <laughs> who's making noise? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is interesting this, how, how sitting in a, a context where I know it's recorded, I pick up on other sounds in ways that I don't if it's not being recorded. So it's like there's a little extra layer of awareness that's just, you know, just making sure that remember, remember, yeah. you know, somebody else will be listening. It needs to be okay, at least. Yeah. Or, or yeah, because when I was, uh, last year, I was a period of time I was recording sounds. Sounds, soundscapes, and it's true that when you're recording, you're like paying more attention to the sounds that are there. Mm. It gives you another layer of awareness, even with, for to use when you even when you're not recording. But had you been recording soundscapes before? Because I know you've been rec recording little, making your little movies. Yeah. Kind of the little Euroversion snippets. Yeah. Um, I've been, I, I have a lot of, but from two years back, from 2019, probably more, not before that. But from 2019, yes, I've been, I've been doing this recording. Yes. Now we are so curious. <laughs> Good. So I'm curious, is my audio messed up? No, now you okay. don't sound as if you're clicking a ballpoint pen, as if you're absolutely just <laughs> going crazy. <laughs> Let me tell you a story about, yeah, that was a lot of fun to listen to. Um, <laughs> well, what I was about to tell you was just a reflection about the, uh, gift culture within the culture as it stands and, and how, um, 
So maybe this is true for you, Inma, with the story you just shared. Maybe not, but it, but it, it anyway, it brought it up for me is that, um, my, an interesting thing about gift culture is that it's already present within our culture, mm-hmm. but we, but we're conscious, like what we, I should speak for myself. What I perceive as real more generally is the market economy. Maybe that's because I need money to buy food it might have something to do with it, but that, um, but that, that doesn't mean there's not also gift culture present throughout. And the, one of the really profound revelations for me has been coming to see that, like where, you know, it's the kind of thing where things can be present that are visible, but you have to, you have to adjust your vision to see them. You have to look in a certain way. Right. And so I think it's like that with the gift economy or gift culture where, um, we're already participating in this. I mean, it's something that podcasters have talked about. It's something that people talk about in open source software contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not always about like a pure gift economy or something. There's often a hybrid sort of notion, but that there still is this presence of giving for the sake of giving or for the sake of creating and developing social bonds. Um, and it, and it, it reminds me of what, Dave Snowden said not too long ago about gift economy, which is that giving a gift is an indication that you want to be in community. And that's an, that's, it's just an entirely different way of being in the world. It's, it's, I don't know how to, I mean, it's just, it's something entirely, it's like apples and oranges with the market economy, right? Because it's, 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 to the extent that there might be an exchange of gifts, it's not like it is in the market economy because we don't keep score in the gift economy because the purpose is not to keep score as it is in the, in the market economy. The reason we have writing is to keep track of grain and transactions, right? Whereas uh, in the gift culture, we give gifts to create social fabric ultimately. And then also, um, that is when that social fabric is, is present, then it's a way to guarantee that abundance always flows in the, in the direction of greatest need, that surplus always flows in the direction of greatest need, that people don't hoard wealth because that doesn't make any sense in that, in that worldview, mindset, culture, way of being. So, but I think that's powerful because, you know, the thing with gift culture is often like, well, how am I supposed to participate in the gift economy? I have to buy food. I mean, I asked that question to myself. Um, and if I don't see that gift culture is already present, pervasive, pervasive in, in society in some ways, then that question is a different question to ask and answer than if and when I do see how I'm already participating and even thriving from a gift culture perspective in a way that a market economy perspective makes my life look largely pathological or deficient. I, I love the shift that you have done from calling it gift economy to call it gift culture. Because that's something that has always bothered me somehow. They put them together in the same plane, in the same, uh, variable uh, axis, gift economy and market economy are not in the same axis. They are not 
they are not something that we can measure the same way and say, okay, this is beef economy and this is market economy because the, there's nothing to do with one or with another one. So I like, I like, I like a lot that shift to, to the name of gift culture rather than gift economy. Which together with what you said, Matthew, about writing being, you know, actually to start with, it was this 15 sacks of grain and 12 sacks of whatnot, pork, meat, or, you know, I don't know what. I was listening to the Emerald, I've, you know, I've started listening to the episode with the Australian Aboriginal, I don't remember his name. Tyson Yucaporta. That one. Where... I picked up on this big, big difference in what he shared there and what or how uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer shares in Braiding Sweetgrass, where she says it's a deliberate action of hers to capitalize elder, sweetgrass, human, bear, etc., in, in this way of honoring and whatever his name was, Tucson? T Tyson. Tyson. Tyson saying, I am careful with naming. I don't want to name everything. And when I try to describe and put words to this feeling of the connection, for instance, boom, it's gone because then I'm not in that state, that plane. And that is why I don't capitalize any of the words in my book. And I just went, ha, huh, this is so interesting because my sense is that they actually come from precisely, maybe not precisely, but they come from a viewpoint where they want to honor, treasure, cherish, be respectful. Mm -hmm. And they kind of come to this opposite. One, I'm capitalizing it deliberately. One, I'm hesitant to even name it, but I definitely won't capitalize it because the moment you capitalize it and say, here's wood, mm -hmm. you can easily put it into the market economy and make right. it a commodity and, and, and like mm. kind of lose the relationship with it. So I just, it was interesting to, I, I just, hmm. Yeah, that gave me some thank you. He's talking about something that I I think he's talking about the same thing that um, Nora Bateson and um, and maybe a couple others I've heard talk about emergence in those terms. In that this it's not even a fear; it's just a recognition that you know as emergence becomes a term that people use and people get, begin to grasp what we're pointing to when we use that word, then now we're going to find seminars on emergence in corporate settings and we're going to wrap it up and package it and sell it for blah, blah, blah. And it's just going to be the same thing, just like what happened with systems in the eighties and like, and so, yeah. um, and that, that is, I think what he's pointing. And so actually that ties that process is, is, um, something that, uh, a number of people have also written about in the context of, um, well, broadly in the context of the history of um, our culture in the West, 
um, in particular around the time, the transition from oral to written culture. Um, and, and, you know, David Abram talks about this in, in terms of the impact on, 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 um, what is animated to an oral culture versus a written culture. And in an oral culture, what is animated, what is animate is the world and you as a part of it, not separate. And what is animated to a living, to a written culture is the words, the written word. And so, you know, you read Harry Potter and a whole world opens up for you, opens up for you, right? And then we translate that into screens and video games and all that, right? And so in all of, we're always moving further away from what's actually living and supporting us. Um, but then also Ian McGokris talks about in term, that same shift in terms of the the hemispherical dominance of the brain moving from a native right brain dominance um so that which is it's tricky right so i think there's something interesting here i was thinking earlier in terms of market economy versus gift culture or or keeping them both as economies that's like talking about matriarchy and patriarchy as though somehow we're just talking about a shift into which gender is dominating which right and that's what Rianne Isley pointed to as no these are different apples and oranges we have dominator and 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 partnership these are two different ways of being in the world and it's the same thing with right brain dominance and left brain dominance it's it's that it's not that right brain left brain dominance is dominator culture or or it can can be can be compared easily to dominator culture there's a lot in common there right brain right brain dominance um is partnership between the two hemispheres um, and because left brain, when the left brain is dominant, it disregards the right brain. When the right brain is dominant, it, it contains both opposites. It's a coincidence of opposites of both sides of the hemispheres, both sides of the brain that, that do things differently. And we need both of those ways of doing things. Because if we're only, if the left brain is dominant, we never see the whole picture. And this is what happens in language. And to come back to what set me off on this, this point is that it's abstraction. Right. Is that, and that's what Yoko Porta says in that conversation too, is that it, when we name something, we're able to abstract it and mm -hmm. then treat it as an object and dominate it and put it into a market economy. He doesn't go into say on all those things, but it's that same gist. Um, and that if we, if we, um, and he's speaking in, you know, specifically in terms of capitalization, but he's also speaking specifically in terms of naming in terms of proper naming in this case with capital letters, but that it's, again, it's about holding it loosely. And maybe this is also about coincidence of opposites, but that he's saying like, you can't, you don't want it to get too rigid either. It's like, he's got these five minds that he's connecting together, but he says like, you know, I sort of mess it up in, in on purpose because I say like, I use the hand five fingers, each finger represents this kind of mind. And you see those as separate, but don't forget the hand can become a fist and then they're all together. But you can also go, you know, what does this one with that one and the other one look like and put these fingers together and leave two of them out or, and they're it's so that you can't, um, because this is where we get dogmatic thinking and this is where we get scientism as opposed to the rigorous practice of science, which is nothing is ever settled in science. And so when someone says, I am the science, they're, they're demonstrating to people who understand what science actually is that they're either intentionally um, <laughs> pulling the wool over people's eyes or they're ignorant. 
right? And so, um, or so, and I don't, don't need to pass judgment on anyone, but, but the point is just that this rigidity is, is not where life is. Mm. I was, I was thinking in terms of the both perspectives are totally complementary. I, I don't, I see the no naming as, as the whole, it, see if I can put my thoughts here, <laughs> cause I'm going we'll to link it to God. So it's going to be, you. um, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> the no naming, right. Alludes to the world, the, the whole world. Um, but even when God created the world, every day he created a part of the world and at the end of the day, he, she named that part, right? Because as Matthew said, we have two parts of the brain and both are really good and do the job they do. So, and when, when Kimmer says capitalize the name, what I feel is I am a woman and I'm Imma at the same time. I am a tree and, and this, uh, January I've been, uh, as you would know, drawing trees and I was kind of obsessed with these, finding the names of the trees I'm, I'm drawing, right? And, and it wasn't because I needed them for me to pay attention to those trees, to, to find a relationship with the trees. I needed them to find a relationship with that tree particularly. So in my animated world, that those trees around me are all alive and are in relationship with me and I am in relationship with them. With that particular tree that I wanted to dry, to draw, I was, what is her name? What is his name? So I think it's just that, it's just two, two part of the brain acting. One, one wants to be attending to the particular parts of that uniqueness. And the other part of the brain is, is wanting desperate to attend to the whole. Mm. I, I, I read those two people doing that somehow. Well, and that is the coincidence of opposites that you're pointing to. Yeah. Right. It's that these are two totally different ways of doing things. And we get caught in this from a left brain perspective, with left brain dominant perspective, we get caught in this notion that like one of them's right. And it's like, well, yes. And so is the other one. Mm -hmm. Right. And we need them both. Just like with, is it important to see the whole picture or the parts? Well, the yes. answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And in that line, in that line, being emergence, uh, that beautiful world that, uh, implies that beautiful meaning and, uh, 
world or the world that wants to be, we need both. We need the people who is going to make that meaning mainstream and, and that will eventually vacuum clean <laughs> somehow the, uh, the whole part of the, of the world. And we also need the, the, because at some point when, when emerge, emergence get to the, get to the moment when it's, it's lost in, 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 in meaning, when there is no meaning attached to it because it's too mainstream and people attach to it, whatever they want, then it will come up. It will emerge another world that will go yeah. and complete the cycle and start again. So, which he also points to this hmm. sort of transitional words. Hmm. And I'm thinking that's probably always there, right? It's like. There will always be words that we need to use in a transition phase because there's always a transition phase. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, there will be paradigm shifts, but then there'll be a new one and then a new one. And it, you know, it can be worldview. It can be technology. It can be, you know, it's like, there's always something, um, there's always something that's in that, uh-oh, old paradigm doesn't really work anymore. We're going towards the new one. How can we speak about this phase that we're in? It's like, yeah, transitional words. I think, too, about the notion of the, the finger pointing at the moon and and in terms of words and naming like that, and in terms of transitional words even, in that, it's um, the finger pointing at the moon is doing so to allow us to see the moon. Relying on the finger is not, it's, it's a, it's a crutch, right? And, and so it's, and it's sometimes in, in a crutch. So maybe a crutch is the wrong term. That's what people use that word, but that it's a, um, it's a, it gives you a, a, a leg up or a head start, or it's in a, in a, in a, it offers assistance in, in seeing the moon. It's like a teacher does to, for a student, but the, but the student, the goal of a teacher teaching a student is not to make the student reliant on the teacher, but rather the other way around for the, the, I mean, hopefully <laughs> the, the purpose of a teacher is to enable the student to move beyond the teacher, to, to, un, to discover things the teacher will never be able to discover, but also just to be able to thrive in whatever context the teaching is about. And so, and so uh, these words can, um, we can talk about emergence and be looking at the same thing and, 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 and therefore the word allows us to just sort of home in on and verify that, yeah, like, oh, em oh, emergence. Well, you, you know, so I s sort of generally know what you mean about that. And as we talk about it, we can get a, 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 a greater sense of, yes, we're looking at the same thing and we each have a perspective on it. But what we're looking at is something that's actually real and alive. It is not the word. Right. And, and, and that's the, tr that's, it's that way of being in re in relationship with what it is we're looking at 
that is not about the word and that when we package the word and we say like, oh, now I, I like emergence is, is a solid <laughs> fixed target and I've identified it. Now I can wrap it in a box and sell it on LinkedIn or something um, rather than emergence is a living thing to be in relationship with. Those are two entirely different ways of, of being in the world. And one of them, <laughs> I want to say something provocative, like one of them has a future, <laughs> you know, but, but on a certain level, I don't know if that's even provocative other than just like telling it like it is or something. But I, but I think that's a really crucial distinction to be able to make. And I've been thinking, I'm going to see if I can find a, um, file because I, I, um, I read, um, let's see, I will put here. I read, um, Colin Wilson's C.G. Young. Uh, book, hmm. little book, um, and in Swedish. But so there were plenty, there were like 20, 15, 20 pieces that I, I've written down. And one of them, because he, it's like, I under, I've heard Steve Emery speak about active imagination, you know. Dominic is, there's a lot of archetypes. There's, you know, Clarissa Piccola Estes, a women around with the wolves. It's a Jungian analyst. And, you know, it's like, so, but I'm never really, I don't know, Jung, you know, I don't, I don't have a clue. So it was really a good thing to read this little book. But one of the things on page 104 in my book, I'll try to translate it. So... It says, what he'd been searching for in Africa was the feeling that there's an invisible world around us. Primitive people feel that they are surrounded by spirits. In Europe, the poltergeist activity is viewed as an inexplainable expression for the unconscious. In Africa, it is viewed as a visible expression of um the 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 spirits that can't be seen the un yeah the, the spirits that are there but aren't visible and tangible um which i think also is this thing about animating and any you know it's like there's in a left brain dominated world you know if i can't see it measure it explain it doesn't exist <laughs> um whereas in that partnership it's like yeah i can't see it doesn't mean it's not real no it's just something else and and again it's interesting how there's so much that is not tangible that in the culture that we live in is absolutely accepted love how do you measure that how do you where does it sit how, you know it's like it's there it's like nobody says love doesn't exist or 
I haven't heard anybody say it, right? So it's like, but how do you, where do you find that? So some little remnants remain, at least, of these where we are culturally okay with, with the stuff that we just cannot explain in a left-brain-dominant rational, logical, you know, point one leads to two, leads to three, and that way. It's like, yeah, try to explain love that way. I'm sure there has been lots of neuroscientific testing to try to figure out where in the brain love is. And somewhere I read or heard somebody saying that, you know, in, in maybe it was in the introduction to, uh, the master and his emissary actually about neural scans. It's like it's it's spoken about as if okay, when you're angry, this part of the brain lights up, but that's just a matter of scale. You know, it's mostly there. That's where there's the most activity. There's activity in the entire brain, right? In the it's like body. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, precisely everywhere right. there's activity precisely, but it's like, but if we kind of turn that down so that we only see the peaks, then it looks as if it's situated here. Hmm. Or maybe not. <laughs> well, and it's oh. interesting because we think about the, we think of the brain as something contained within the skull and, yeah. and that there is that thing there. Yes. And there's a term that's, that's being used now, which is the skull brain. Yeah. To, to, by its use, point out yeah. that the brain is not, I mean, because we think about, we, take, we talk about neurology, like I fall for this, like neurology, neuroscience, it's all inside the, the yeah. cranium. Like that's what yeah. that's studying. What does N-E-U-R mean though, right? Nerve. The nervous system is not contained within the skull no. and the nervous system is distributed through the entire body. And so... What is the brain really, you know, and, and it's, and it's even then again, like in particularly from a left brain perspective, the brain is a part and it's like, it does everything. It's in the driver's seat or it's making the decisions or what, you know, whatever, maybe it's doing what the body's telling it to do. I mean, in terms of the, yeah. the traffic of information in the nervous system, 80% of that traffic is afferent, meaning it goes from the body to the brain. 20% goes in the other direction. So who's telling who to do what actually, right? Like there's all this sensory input that is, you know, we, we don't, anyway, you know, you know, what, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this is, it's just one of these things that's hidden in plain sight. If we're not really conscious about wh what words we're using and what, what they mean. Um, yeah. And I was, I, I've only read the introduction to the Master Radius Emissary and like, 16 pages of of the first chapter or so but in it he points also to this i mean he's it's kind of fun he's he's kind of wordy um and having a you know he, he, the book feels like he looks here's this older british gentleman <laughs> you know who quite likes his words and he'll go you know it on little so he's like it's, it feels as if it's a conversation. I'm in a conversation with him. He's telling me something, you know, but he, he has this little example of music showing precisely this partnership between left brain, 
right brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, which had me thinking of uh, Benjamin Sanders, the the TED talk he gave where he speaks about classical music and how it's it's he shows he has a big grand piano on stage and he's he's showing this and he's like you know when you start to play music piano he's like one finger here and one finger there you're like trying to work it out and then you're you get a little bit okay you're doing the scales but it's still this very mechanistic way of doing it and you find the you know you get to be able to play a fuge by Bach or something but it's still this very rigid left brain dominated uh way of like here's the detail and Ed this is the note and it's you know it's a half note or it's an eighth of, you know it's like it needs to be done and then eventually you come into what he explains as one buttock playing where you're on one of your butt cheeks and you're playing and that is for me when you kind of step out of the detail into that hole where you you know the notes you know the value of each note you know where they're situated but you're you're in the music somehow um it looks as if you guys haven't watched that TED talk. <laughs> uh, that, I've, I've heard of one buttock playing before. <laughs> so it, it, I may have, but it's been a long time ago. I haven't, but I, I would love to get I'm gonna, a little bit I'm, deeper, a little bit yeah, deeper I'll, into I'll this. I'll send you a link and I'll put it in the show notes because it's because just what a favorite if, of mine. Sorry. Done. What if it's the opposite way around? <laughs> Why do, you have, why, why do you have to start knowing the notes? So I'm, I'm not going to try to explain it. It's just, you know, he has been a piano teacher, a music teacher, conductor, whatever. Yeah. This was his way of, of showing how it is. But somehow I think also starting in the right brain partnership way where why would you want to play music? Why would you want to play the piano? It's not because of the here's a note and here's a note value. It's like, right? So so Ian McGillchrist speaks about how it flows between the right brain and the left brain. And in for me, that's what it feels like. Uh, Benjamin Sanders explains also, it's like mm. this flow in between how you, both of them are there, both of yes. them are in play. Neither of them is more important than the other. You need, you need both. It is the partnership. It is this, that's where. Yes. Uh, yes. And, uh, what I what I'm trying to say is your in the interest you when you me okay I'm gonna speak I wanting to go to music is not my my willing to music is music itself it's not the left part of the brain wanting to know mm -hmm. the how music is made. Then 
when that connection is made, and that connection is made, I believe, when we are very, 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 even even inside the room, yeah, right? Yeah. We, yeah. When that connection is made, then there would be a moment of, hmm, actually, I want to know what this, how can I apprehend this knowledge? How can I make this happening back or Beethoven or how can I tap into the creative part of the knowledge of the creative part? But if I don't have that interest at the beginning, which is coming from the whole, I don't think I would be very interested in, in, in going to the process of learning the music, learning how to play yeah. the piano, for yeah. example. I'm totally with you. And it's like, for me, that that is what, what he speaks to. It is like, yeah. it, it starts in that there's something here. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that just is. And I love what it is. And then some people are forced. You have to play the piano or the guitar or the flute or whatever, which kind of totally gets some people just just say, no, I won't ever. And some people find that there's something here where if I have gotten this somehow knowledge, something else can emerge. Mm -hmm. And... It's like, well, it's, it's interesting. Music is interesting that way. Because, uh, I mean, I think that we have, we can make a lot of music without having the knowledge of what's this tone, what's this tempo, what's this, you know. Yeah. And there's also a lot of, there's a lot of music that somebody has made that I would like to know that I, you know, what, how can I do that? Yeah. Which brings me over to my neighbor over here, works at Skewanes uh, Dance Theater. Yeah, the dancing theater here in Skewana, which is a lovely place, modern dance. And I was asking her, how do you, what's, what does the sheet music of modern dance look like? You know, a piece of, of, Here's this piece, you know, they put up shows and it's called a name and there's, you know, three acts and, you know, you know, you're supposed to come in from the right then and twirl here and, but how do you like put that down? Because it's like words. Yeah, we can, we have the alphabet music. Yeah, we have the musical alphabet. It's dance. How does that look? And she, she explained to me that if you work, you know, if you work with a choreographer, you help them set up their work, then you might learn their work in such a way that you can then set it up. But I, who have never worked with any choreographer, would not be able to take, oh, that show you did 10 years ago by that choreographer, whatever. Because there's, it doesn't exist. Now maybe you can because it's, you know, on TV or something. You can, it's been filmed, but. So yeah. there's, there's, there's like. That feels somehow more. Um, 
ephemeral. It, it, it doesn't turn into something as tangible as a word does to me or as sheet music does to me. It's like, I can take sheet music, I can give it to Murphy and he'll play it. You know? And then give it to somebody else who has no clue and they'll just go, what? But they know it's sheet music, so they'll find somebody, right? But choreography or modern dance or ballet, I'm guessing ballet is the same. But maybe there's more names to to the classical ballet uh, poses. But modern dancing, where you're like contorting, how do you? It's like, what's the name of that movement that you just made? Hmm. It's interesting because that it brings up a lot of things, but but a, a couple, just one to in passing is Christopher Alexander's pattern language, um, which which began in the context of architecture. He was an architect, and the book was written by the original book was written by a team of or a collective of architects, um, describing a pattern language of architecture, which is to say, these are patterns that exist within architecture. And you can almost take them and just like, you know, pick the, pick out the ones you need, but it's also, it's also about relationship with place and all these other things, but, but that just in passing. Anyway, what I'm hearing in a lot of this though, is whether we're talking about music or dance and it kind of, kind of comes together for me in what you're describing with dance is oral versus written culture, right? Because musical notation is the written form of, you know, it's, it's written and these are abstract. It's fully abstract. There, there's no, there's nothing in where the D is on this. I mean, there is, I could say, you know, I, as you could say, there's a, a chronology, a linear chronology to placement that corresponds with the keys on a piano, which correspond with the notes in a scale. But even that scale is tempered, right? That like the, yeah. the Western scale is mathematically contrived for the sake of using machine-like instruments to reproduce sound that we call music, right? That's very different from... Uh, a, a bone flute, right? Mm. It's, it's an entirely where you might have a, a diatonic scale or a pentatonic scale or something where these are things that exist in the world and we can as ascribe geometric features to them and so forth and so on. But, um, but that gets very quickly into, into the abstract with geometry even. And so, um, but then, and so, cause you can have, you know, there are people who can um, play music, but can't read music. And they can play Bach, but they still can't read music because they can hear it and play it. They know how to do that. Um, there are people that can do both. Um, and there are, uh, um, you know, in terms of where, where, where Emma was going this originally, there's this sense of the process of coming to music and learning music and teaching or, or learning music. And the way that's done in our culture in the West is, is generally speaking, broadly done as, as a, as a feature of written culture, right? And this is, and, and we're, you know, I learned to play the piano, I learned to play the guitar first, but, but really the got traction with the piano and that it's a machine, right? It's a percussion machine basically. Um, and, uh, and I still love it, but, but it's within this particular context that's very different from, uh, djembe or, um, or, or, a, or, a, or, a, or, a, a, some, something like I'm thinking of these sort of archetypal instruments like drums and flutes or, you know, where you, where it's either like, you know, here's a, a res, here's a re resonant chamber with a skin. I hit it and it, and it, I can create a rhythm 
or here's a hollow tube with holes in it that I can blow through with my breath and create melody, um, which of course is just an, you know, we're just recreating the human body there because that's all that the human body, when we're singing, it's just breath, it's air moving through a resonant chamber, right? And so um, in terms of dance, you get to this thing with choreography where, and I don't, I've never known much about this. I have a friend actually who's, who's has a history in dance and choreography, and I've never talked about this with her, but, um, but there's, that's where I was thinking about a pattern language. Cause when you're working with a particular choreographer studying under Martha Graham or stuttering under studying, under stuttering, easy for me to say, studying <laughs> under Merce Cunningham or whoever that, um, that you're learning their language of dance. And you can only learn it in relationship with them and with their work, right? And so then that can inform your work and you take it out into the world. But I can learn from Bach if I can read music. And that's not the same thing, right? Because one of those is, is, is an example of a written culture and how a written culture works. And, and the other is an oral culture. And in terms of living in a living world or not, um, this is what David Abram points to in terms of language and how when we went from Hebrew to Greek, we lost all reference within the written symbols of representation or symbol, because that is present in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, these different letters originally referred to, they're originally pictures. They're originally um, something not unlike a pictograph or a hierog hieroglyph. There's, there's a, I think there's a particular name for it, but that when, and that's present within the Hebrew alphabet and because of the Hebrew culture. But when we move, when the Greeks take the Hebrew alphabet and they make it into their own, all those references are immediately gone. And so now we have a purely abstract series of symbols or signs or whatever, whatever the proper term is that we use to construct these linear sentences and all that. But, um, when we go further back to like that representation within the Hebrew alphabet is a vestige of oral culture so that we, when we're in an oral culture, you know, where do we turn for knowledge in a written culture? Well, we open a book, right? Generally speaking, or we go online Today and you'd read Google. something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's, but it's, it's, it's words, it's, it's letters into yeah. words into mm -hmm. sentences, right? Whereas in an oral culture, that's not a part of the landscape. And so how do we know what something is? How do we know what something's name is? It's, he, Abram describes a, a, a conversation that is ongoing and always changing, right? Between the people and the landscape and the other, the more than human elements of the landscape, the trees, the rocks, the animals. And how do you find out what their names are? Well on a certain level, what you're actually doing is asking them. And, and, and also when we have names, we have, um, now I'm forgetting who it is that talks about this. Um, I think it's Abram in the spell of the sensuous, but, um, na names for places are descriptive names for people are descriptive, maybe metaphorical, um, but descriptive. And so we don't have, um, a name, like a name for a concept, like Emma, your birth name is right. Or 
Um, I don't even, I'm sure my name, Matthew, has a meaning originally, but it wasn't the meaning that, that was why it was given to me. It was, a, it was an association with a character in a religious book, right? And so um, there's a remove there. It's not, you know, they don't call me, he was born three days after an eclipse. That would be descriptive and accurate. They give me a name that has nothing to, like, I mean, it has, it has to do with me only through some idea in my parents' perception of me and my place in the world or some, I don't know what their thinking was, but, but so this is an, a totally different way of being in relationship with naming. And, and that's, that seems at least in oral context, like it's, it's less of a concern that we're going to fall into the question of capitalization or, or, or what we're trying to avoid by not capitalizing something that, that this rigid rigidification is some is something that happens in a literal landscape and not an oral landscape. Yeah, which which brings uh relationship to the center. I mean I I I I can't participate in a in a composition, a dance composition, always that I could be in relationship with the choreographer the, and the people who are dancing. If I'm not, I won't be able to do that. And cutting through my relationship with the sound, putting words or notes down on a paper so I can understand them from my left hemisphere. So dancing, we haven't got that far. Dancing is still more, it's wilder yeah. than yeah. music. It's not as domesticated. Exactly. Yeah, it's more feral. We try with classical dancing. Yeah. There's something there's something about place in this too, because of memory, right? Cause, cause when you're talking about notation with music, like why do we, I mean, why do we write anything down so we can, it helps us remember it. We don't, it's not actually, that's actually not true. It doesn't help us remember it. It helps us forget precisely, it. Right? Precisely. It allows so us I don't not, have to remember. We don't have to remember it. Right. And so, um, so then it's external to me. I'm not living in relationship with it anymore. I can literally put it on a shelf mm -hmm. and, but. Abram talks about a tradition in, um, I'm, I'm not going to try and name the tribe because I'm probably going to get it wrong, but it's a, a, a Native American tribe in um, the Southwest of the U.S. Um, with a, 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 a feature of the culture where there are stories that are tied to specific places that are used as... Um, I don't know, I don't know what, how to describe what they're doing. They're, they're, they're ways of, I don't want, cause I don't want to say corrective, maybe that's appropriate, but they're ways of defining the culture, um, by identifying its boundaries of behavior. So that when, and Yoko Porta talks about this, I think in the conversation you're referring to Helena, um, on the Emerald, that, that there are, um, 
you know, there are things that a culture is and that a culture is not. There are things that are appropriate to a culture and that are inappropriate, right? And so we need to have a, a living awareness within a culture of what those things are. And in an oral culture, in this example, he's talking about how the practice is, um, there are these stories that are related to place. And each of the stories is an identification of a boundary line through a story where someone crossed the boundary and something bad happened to them or something bad happened to their family or something like there was a negative consequence for this behavior because they stepped beyond the bounds of, of what's culturally appropriate. And it's tied to a place because if that happened in this place, that makes it real. It's not even that it, that makes it real, it is real. And so they're describing the place where it did happen. And then he describes a process where when an elder witnesses a younger member of the culture moving in that same direction of that, that going beyond that boundary of the culture, they have this subtle but profound process where they'll, in that person's presence in front of others, they'll make reference to that story. And I generally, what will happen then if it works is that the person will like, just kind of excuse themselves and leave or like they'll get the message. But it's done in a, in a sense, there's a way where it's, there's a subtlety of like not shaming and they're not saying like, hey, you did something wrong, but they're saying something that they know which pair of ears it will land in because that's the pair of ears that need to hear it because there's an awareness that you're on that edge. And, and in that way, then every time they drive past that place, because these are actual places in the landscape they share, they drive past that place or a friend tells them that they went past this place that they know is right next door to that place that same story and that same um, comment from the elder comes back to them. And so that the culture, the, the awareness of that boundary of the culture is alive within them through relationship with that specific place. And it's a place that has a name like, you know, where the creek runs over the great white boulder or whatever, I'm making this up, but it's a descriptive term for a place that is real, right? It's not, you know, it's not a conceptual name. Um, and, uh, it seems like I had another component for the, like another comment about the, the, the written culture component for that. And I, I don't remember what it was, but I think that, well, it's just to do with memory, right? That when we start writing things down, we're, we're we have an entirely different relationship with memory. Um, that's not based on place. Like he does point to how we have a vestige of this in Western culture, which we, um, you know, shows up on BBC versions of Sherlock Holmes, you know, that, that the memory palace idea, right. Is that this is something that comes from Roman orators who would memorize their, their speeches by walking through this, they're walking in a building, but they're walking through and they're remembering where they are along the way. Um, and, and that's, but that this is the way human memory works. It's spatial. It's, it's, it's relative to space and to place. Um, and that as we move away from, of course, why were the orators doing this? Because they weren't writing their speeches down, right? They were remembering them for oral reproduction. And so, um, that's, uh, I think there's a, I think there's a lot in, in that, in terms of, because there's a lot that comes together there in terms of oral versus written, living in an animate versus an inanimate world, a real versus an abstract experience of the, of, of the world of places and this component of place, which, I mean, in, in conversations that you and I have had in my, in the past, we've talked about, or I've articulated it this way, that culture is what arises in relationship between a people and a place. 
um, and that uh, originally anyhow. And so I think that place is endemic to human culture, but that we've gotten away from that. We've lost sight of, we've lost a, a, a we lost our relationship with that awareness as we had, cause we were, all of us are, you know, we're born into a literal culture. Um, and so there may still be vestiges, but we have to do some work of uncovering where we come from in those terms. And it's interesting. I get, um, I'm, I'm linking it to like the Bible or the Quran or, or which is these written stories coming from a place where certain things made sense that are now like, it's like they've levitated away from place and are valid in, in, you know, throughout the world, if you're a Christian in Sweden or the U S or Africa or India, you know, it's like you live by the same rule. Um, which means that some of those rules doesn't make sense at all. There's like, there's nothing that makes sense to that. If you live in a cold, uh, country. Because it's from a warm country where, you know, temperatures are 40 degrees Celsius, um, which means that meat go bad really quickly. It's like, so that we, we, we then stay with the rules without making linking sense. them, without making them relevant to this place. Yeah. What would it be like here? Yeah, I get Ayurveda, India, warm country, monsoon, you know, moisture, lots of weird bugs for me, because I'm not Indian. Transplanting that to Sweden, you know, it's not an, a like-for-like -like exchange. So, kind of, and, and I think... The fact that it is written down makes it harder. If it had been oral, it would have grown. It would have shifted as you moved away from the warm country to the cold country. It would just not make sense. So it would shift. So, so that emergence would probably be more vital or you know happening active. yes it would be an aspect of it in a way which um one of my favorite on being episodes i probably have a hundred favorite on being episodes but this is one of them with uh rabbi lao levy i think his name is god optional creative everybody welcome uh He's a, he's a rabbi in, in New York. He speaks about the Bible this way, the Old Testament. And I just love it because it's like, because he just says, that doesn't make any sense at all. That was really valid 3,000 years ago. Today, nah, you know, don't go there. <laughs> and it's just, oh, it's, a, it's, it's, it's liberating to hear somebody who, 
is still steeped in the tradition, still steeped in, you know, he is a rabbi. He is, he is a Jew. That is his culture. That is what his beliefs are. And he's allowing, like, roots to form in the here and now somehow. Rather than it just being this fluffy thing that lost its roots 2,000 years ago. The, you know, that the other thing about the translist, the, the, excuse me, the transition from Hebrew to Greek with the alphabet is that in Hebrew, there are no vowels. And in Greek, what the Greeks did was they took these, what were to them extra letters in the Hebrew alphabet and made them into vowels. So they fixed something. And I say fixed because in Hebrew, there is in the Hebrew Bible, there is a built-in component of ambiguity that, um, because there are no vowels written but there are a multiplicity of vowels in the language, different words can be pronounced differently and create different meanings. And so there is no way, it's like a, a security against rigidification that's inherent in that, right? And so, um, and, and, and so related to that, I have no idea what the causality is, but related to that is, um, or that exists within as a part of a culture that has, in my understanding, all along maintained a relational uh, <laughs> relationship. That's redundant. But that their relationship with the written word is not fixed. And, and that there is, there is a arguing with the text, even arguing with God, Israel means, you know, he who wrestles God literally, right? So that, um, there, that's actually endemic to the culture. That's not at all, ta it's far from taboo. It's actually central. Um, and so that, what that, the effect that has is that while there is this written text, the meaning is not fixed because every person who reads it, every new generation there, you cannot escape um, making you the, the need to make your own meaning of the text. Whereas when we get, you know, the, the new Testament was originally written in Greek, <laughs> right? So everything's already fixed right there. Um, and, and, and so then we can, we can have, it's, 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 it's where we've, at that point, we have cut the finger pointing at the moon off of the hand. And now we're just going to carry it with us wherever we go and call it truth. And well, you know, to say that's missing the point, <laughs> which is to see the moon, um, is, you know, so, um, but what's interesting about that in particular to me with the Hebrew vowels is that what is that, but breath, right? That's, and, and I think, and I'm, I'm going further than I probably should, but there's a, and I think all of this is really coming from David Abram in terms of what I just shared, but that, um, Ruach is the, is a Hebrew, um, word, which means both, um, breath and wind. Um, and, um, and so, okay, there are all these words in, in English, Greek, Hebrew, like they're that a Latin 
animal, animate, um, spirit, right? All, all these, um, psyche, even all, all these go back to wind or to air or to breath in their original meanings. Um, but that it is that living, like what is, you know, if, how do we know if somebody's breathing? Like, you know, put your hand in front of their mouth, you know, how do you know if they're alive? Right. Um, it, it, it so that breath is, is a definition of life on a certain level and that the, the, the text itself requires human breath to be alive, right? That, so we're not, we're, we're not, it's somehow it's not separate from us. Like there's a, it's literal, but it, but it's still, it's not gone across that final line that we get with Greek where everything is finally solidified and, and what the, you know, what breath you bring to it is, is, is already indicated by the text itself, as opposed to it, it's taking your agency in terms of meaning making away before you even come in the door, before you even born, it's already gone. Whereas with Hebrew, you can't get away from that. That, that reminds me of, um, it could be defined, I guess, as a slogan, uh, of someone that you both know that says, people like us do things like us, like this. And I think simplifying culture to that is, um, is kind of saying we don't need place and place equal nature here. We just need people. So human people are the one that is, that are the culture. And the differences between the different culture is people like us do things like this. And then you don't need place. You don't need nature. You don't need anything else. Interesting. Well, it, it brings up, um, we're going to sound like emerald junkies today, maybe because we are, but, um, <laughs> there's another episode that I've been listening to from that show. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's tra is the first word, which is a, which is a root. It's a Proto-Indo-European root. Um, I'm very curious about his sources because he, he connects a lot of words as having the same root that I haven't been able to find in my meager etymological resources online. Um, I, I'm not doubting him, but I'm, it makes me curious. Um, truck, train, travel, transportation, mantra, trip, like all of these words, thread, all of these are coming from this traverse, anything with in, in Latin from TRA is going translation, translation, transit, anything with trans is, you know, um, but tra and trance, of course, too, you know, and, and entrance, because, which is also in trance, right? <laughs> um, but he's talking, he's talking about a lot of things, of course, because that's, he's talking, when you're looking at a root that that's, that's that fundamental and also fans out that broadly throughout languages, um, you're talking about a lot of different things, but that, um, one of the things that he says in there is that we've gone, he's talking about trains and how, like how many train songs there are. Isn't it amazing? Like trains just evoke something for people. And, um, 
And they were very controversial when they came. People had or were of two minds about what impact they would have on the culture. But that one of the things he points to is how with this ability to travel that fast, um, we then move from a pilgrimage of traveling to a place for a purpose to going anywhere. And so that, you know, you can go, we could go to Athens and eat at McDonald's, right? Um, and, and, and so, the, you know, the geography of nowhere is a term from, I want to say the 80s even that I was first seeing that. But a long time ago, this notion of like strip malls and franchises on, you know, and, uh, but that he's talking about anywhere as opposed to nowhere actually, which is, I think, an interesting distinction. Maybe they're synonymous, but, but I like this somewhere versus anywhere because he's not saying going nowhere you saying we're going we're going but we're, we could go anywhere which is on a certain level equ equatable right that um but that this you know culture and the role that place plays in culture is what i you know is what's coming up for me when with what you're saying emma and yeah. I, of course I, I agree with you about that um but i think it's interesting in terms of well we use different directions to go with that um, in terms of the notion of trance and how we are entranced by um, so so much, but but we're not entranced with purpose. Like in a culture, uh, in an oral culture, in relationship with a place, trance served a very certain, a very particular purpose, um, and uh, and was it had a particular role in the culture. Whereas, where it's true today too, but what is that role? Like what what world of Warcraft, like what is the purpose, right? Meta, virtual reality, what is the purpose? Mm -hmm. I say met, meta TM, like Mark Zuckerberg's new <laughs> fantasy, um, that like, I know that here's how we'll solve all the problems. Everybody just, if, you, if you're not tuned out enough already, here's a way to tune out more. And now things will get better. And of course they will for Mark Zuckerberg, but, um, but you know, it's like we're moving, that's moving further away from any sense of being grounded in, in, in reality, in a living world, even in the place of the building you're in, the, the mm -hmm. room you're in, which is already the anthropocentric zone, yeah. you know, yeah. um, but let's go further away from that. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, that's not very solution oriented, but that, but just <laughs> the role of place is really what I wanted to yeah. point to that. And I love train. Me too. In compared to planes, mm -hmm. but in compared with my feet, I love my feet better. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things he points to about trains is the rhythm, which is also a part of song, like, you know, Arlo mm -hmm. Guthrie singing Steve Goodman's, um, the city of new Orleans, which is the name of a train in the U S um, the rhythm of the rails is all they feel, right? You know, um, that they're the, it's a hypnotic, it's like drumming at a circle. It's like, it's like that theta beat for trance induction, right? I mean, and, and, and it so, is disappearing. I mean, there mm -hmm. are more yeah. and more train tracks where that little gap isn't there because they worked out somehow how to avoid solar warped tracks. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that works, but so even today, 
at least in Sweden, you can go on a train and that sound isn't there. What mm. So what's interesting to me about that is this, I've, I don't know who, I've been listening to so many different people talking about so many <laughs> amazing things that they added blurs, right? But somebody I was listening to was talking about um, this might have been Tyson Yukonporto on a different podcast, even, but that um, the notion of the animate versus the inanimate world, I think it was David Abram, that um, we can, you know, you could go out, go for a walk in the park, and there are living things. You can have bare feet on grass, there are trees, there are birds, there are rabbits. But in an, if you're in Times Square, that's a, a greater challenge. And maybe this is why some people are so inclined, like um, people like us do things like this, people define culture. Because if you're in Times Square, the only living thing, the, the most prominent living thing and, and it is, is people. Of course, there are also, you know, bacteria and weeds. And world, birds yeah. and, Right. And, you know, but it's harder. It's not like, you know, if there's a tree, it was planted, you know, and so there's not much of that there. So in an anthropocentric context, it's more difficult to see the animate nature of the living world. And I'm including, when I'm talking about the more than human world, I'm not just referring to quote unquote living things, fungi, bacteria, plants, and animals. I'm talking about rocks. I'm talking about streams. I'm talking about places. Um, and, and so he's saying, what about that? It, that's still present in those things, right? Those, they're very highly processed, but, but this is why we, this culture digs big holes in the ground is to get iron out and to get these different things out to then process into these tall buildings and everything else. And, but, but there's this notion that you can still, that livingness is still present. It's muted often or, or obscured or, or harder to see because it's made into something else, but it doesn't mean it's not present. And so you can still find that if you look for it. And when you're, Helena, the way you're talking about that click clack of the rails disappearing, I realize like that is a, that sound is an example of that livingness that the steel rails have been, they're highly processed, but they're also elemental. And, and that's actually maybe more, you know, or less processed, uh, given that this is a technology that originates in the 1800s or, or there, I mean, I guess it was the 1800s that um, we didn't have such sophisticated technologies of, of industry at that time um, that we do now where we have fiber optic cable and microchips and this, that, and the other, but that um, and so maybe it's not as obscure in the train tracks. And so we can actually still hear that. And this sophistication of technology that's available to us now is what's erasing that. And it's making it harder than to like, so that, that's, that sound is the presence of the living world in yeah. its elemental form in that technology. And, and I'm just putting words to something that I've been doing and kind of had in me for, I don't know, forever. But you saying that Times Square, you know, it, it's, there are, there are rocks. They're just highly processed. It's like highly processed food. I'm not even sure it should be called food, but highly processed food doesn't really nourish me. 
it's it's not good for me or for you or for the planet. You know, it's like there's a reason why I love having wool and 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 cotton and leather shoes and and like I live in an old house a hundred years old where I don't want to paint the walls with plastic paint you know the kitchen yeah I, I mean and I think that this is this is kind of part of the problem is that we are the highly processed world puts us in this hazy place it's like fog that is enveloping all of us and we don't we can't see we can't feel we we're not nourished we're not grounded um so all of the talk about highly processed food is like ooh can we like broaden that too? Can can more stuff be not highly processed? Um, I mean, you know those like gym clothes that are made out of I don't know everything weird that it's in them. It's like I have a hard time just taking. pieces of clothes like that from the washer and hanging it up because I don't it it doesn't nourish me it doesn't feel good to me to touch it even mm. yeah that that goes back to uh 80% of our brain is in the body or is in the whole and the skin is the majority of it yeah it's huge it's huge so we are processing soon if not already we are highly processing processing people yes processed we are highly High processed people. people yeah and then we we don't mind Sorry, Elena. I, I, we won't mind to have to eat highly processed food, meat, which is made in a laboratory. Yes. But that better or much better that than having a relationship with a cow. Yeah. The laboratory is much better. Yeah. Which is weird. I think it the degree to which we can consume processed food the which that feels compatible to us is a measure of how of what of how we're in relationship with place or land or not yeah as a yeah. living world yeah yeah definitely food food and place it's this yeah yeah so interesting it's just Because we are, we are highly processed people. I mean, there's these anti-inflammatory um, molecules that are in our bloods. It's like 
you you measure a kid at birth and they have like 123 chemicals in them that some plastic just, that just you know it's not supposed to be there. it's just <laughs> not supposed to be there it's like shit we're messing with ourselves and everything else yes. by doing this so <laughs> so this is provocative but it's but it's um i think useful please 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 to Provol two two, two angles on that because you know i'm i'm wanting to i'm, I'm working with this notion of hope without optimism that that it doesn't this you know, looking around, there's very little reason for optimism. And so it's probably not useful to be optimistic, but I feel it's a responsibility to be hopeful because if I'm not hopeful, I'm just saying like, forget it. Like I'm throwing in the towel. So I, so I'm, so I see what you're saying, of course. I mean, I see that too in the world. Um, and it brings up two things. One is from Tyson Yunkaporta and the other is from Terrence McKenna. And, um, I feel like I should apologize to they are, they are not provocative people and well <laughs> right. Terrence McKenna is a very different flavor of provocative and and often yeah. quite obnoxious in my experience so <laughs> I, so I, so I should qualify placing them next to each other but they, they, but this is something that McKenna said that was useful but Yoko Porta is saying in um one of his uh appearances on the Emerald um I think the first one chronologically where they're talking about his book, Sand Talk, and he's talking about pattern and um, talking about how there is the pattern and the pattern is necessary. It's how we survive. It's how the world continues. But also necessary is the disruption of the pattern yeah. because it's essentially like you can think of it as stress testing or just keeping battle, you know, a living self-organized system has to hover near the edge of chaos between equilibrium and disequilibrium. Because if the, if equilibrium is, is achieved, that's what we call death, right? So there has to be both. Um, and so if we look at a broad time scale, then what we're doing is disrupting the pattern. And in that sense, it's necessary. In that sense, it's, we don't have to see it as pathological. I'm always looking for a way of seeing things without pathologizing them. And, and this is a particularly difficult one to do that with. Mm -hmm. But so there's that. And then um, we could also talk about dandelions. What dandelions do are similar roots with tapweeds that are the, you know, people who garden often hate these things. They're just like, it's always, you know. Never mind the fact that it's really powerful medicine and you know, there's a whole other more holistic way of being in relationship with those things. Um, but what, or burdock, there's a whole bunch of plants that do this, particularly these ones with strong tap roots, um, because what are they, what are they doing? There's a stratification to the soil, right? And, and, and the humus is on top, the, all this decaying living matter. There's all the, the nutrients in there, but there are minerals deeper down that are also necessary, but you can't just go in and till it. Oh, well you can, but if you do go in and just keep tilling it, then the living part, you keep disrupting that and never you're killing that community before it ever is established. And you're bringing the minerals up to the surface. And that's not actually a sustainable kind of soil. That's not a living soil. But so what the, a dandelion or a burdock root does is it reaches down, penetrates that you know, even like thick, hard clay 
and transports those minerals up to the surface where they can blend in with the decaying living matter, right? And so then you have, and that's contributing to a sustainable living soil ecosystem. And um, again, on a broad time scale, that makes me think about mining, <laughs> right? And I'm not saying that as an apologist for mining. It's a gruesome, uh, it's hard, like I said, it's hard to find a, a view of that that's, that doesn't, doesn't pathologize it. But what McKenna said to maybe tie these things together and consider a whole list in terms of really living in an inanimate world, because if we take that to its logical extension or to its logical conclusion, then if the earth is living, I know what so you're going. The sun, the, uh, you've heard this before. <laughs> so, so is Jupiter. So, right. And so, so the, the McKenna asked a question that I have been asking outside of this con in that context and also outside of it ever since, because I think it's very useful. What is the ecological function of human beings? Because if we are part of nature, if, if, if Gaia is a living organism, we can't get off so easily as just pathologizing human be behavior. Because humans are just any more than we can, you know, what, a, what liver cells are doing, you know, and so humans have a purpose. And he actually says in this conversation, um, it's not that our purpose is, we're not glorified for having a purpose. Liver, like liver enzymes have a purpose. That doesn't mean that we should stop the show and put them on the marquee, like in the same way that we shouldn't do that for humans. But, that, but it also doesn't mean that we are pathological interactions. So what on earth is that purpose? And he takes this, and we don't have to follow him on this route, but as an example, if Earth is an organism, how do we know what, how do we identify a living organism? It's something that reproduces, right? And so um, let's talk about going to Mars. Let's talk about going to the moon. Let's talk about space travel. Let's talk about the bacteria that went to the moon and back and survived. Like, let's talk about the space probes we've sent out that have now actually left the solar system, how we define the solar system, and are carrying no matter how hard we tried, we've got to know that it's carrying life forms out there into space. So what are those but seeds, right? There's even a theory. I think it was one of the DNA guys, Crick or Watson, that had a theory about this in terms of how life originated on this planet. It was, it was seeded from a meteor or something yeah. like that. Um, and I'm not buying into all these theories, but just for the sake of playing with the frame, what is the purpose of humans? Um, what is the ecological function of, of, of human beings? as a way of understanding how we're performing a pattern disruption and not even that we, I'm not, so I'm not in that saying like, so let's get on board with Elon Musk. I'm, I'm going to say that. <laughs> I'm, I am not, I am not on his side. You know, like I, that's to me, like that is an expression of insanity, ungrounded insanity. The notion that our solution lives on Mars, humans didn't evolve to live in that atmosphere. They evolved to live in this atmosphere. Y'all have a nice trip, but I'm, I'm staying here. Like, sorry, I'm staying on the station. And so anyway, I've said enough. <laughs> but, but pattern disruption, it's interesting to link that to what we were speaking about with oral or written and, and place and, and like rules or the boundaries of this culture and not that culture that when we lose the connection to place it is harder to pattern interrupt 
right? Because that's Until why the you Earth have... interrupts our pattern for us. Yeah, precisely because you have Jews all over the world living according to rules that made a lot of sense where they were spawned. That doesn't make sense when you're living in New York City or the north of Sweden, but we still do it because we are not linking it to place. So the pattern disrupt isn't there. It does, it makes it more rigid. It makes this thing, okay, here's the 10 commandments, live by them. Um. I'll, I just want to point out briefly there that there's, it's worth looking at the difference between Jewish diaspora culture and Christian colonial culture. Yeah. In terms of what we've talked about already, in terms of the difference between the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet, yeah. and that they're actually, because also the Jews have always been a people without a homeland, whereas the Christians just come and they're like, oh, thanks, this, this will be our us. home. You know, yeah. like, and so, yeah. so yeah. they're, they're occupying two very different social positions wherever they go. And, and, and interestingly enough, they have these literary differences at the base of their okay. their culture released on a religious base and in terms yeah. of the people of the book etc but um but so not to detract from what you're saying but i think that's an important distinction yeah in terms of how the how this different forms of the bible have traveled yeah. and how those cultures have and how know. the one really is used in a yeah. much more weaponized way yes yes uh, than the other absolutely but kind of Setting that aside, the the importance of place um, has been, you know, it's like I keep finding new place pops up everywhere. Um, yeah, lately I've been thinking, what if? The most intelligent beings in the world are trees because they are connected to place. The most advanced culture in this planet are the different cultures coming from trees, coming from place. And, and Reading, reading sweet, sweet grass and, 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 and now the, the one strong evolution talking about agriculture and, and the non, uh, doing nothing, um, philosophy and things like that. Um, it really points me out to, to, to. Yeah, being open to learn from them and see, and see, and those relationships, not just from one tree, but the relationship between the trees and how, mm. yeah. Yeah, and Junka Porte speaks about kinship. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, and Robert Wall Kimmerer in her own being speaks yeah. about, you know, kinship. don't call things an it, say yeah. key mm -hmm. instead building on the same thing it's like because if we are kin yeah 
I will treat you differently. I will think about you differently. I will hold you differently. And kin can be a lot more than, you know, my kids, which incidentally starts with key. <laughs> Yeah, think about the way trees are in relationship with the earth hmm. through the depth of the breadth of their roots, right? That there's, when you see a tree, mm -hmm. you're only seeing half of that being, if half of its physical structure. Um, and then, mm -hmm. it, like you're saying, like what we as humans have to learn from trees who don't have the choice to move which we do, mm -hmm, and exactly. it'd be an interesting parallel. There are two in terms of the skull brain versus the, the brain, um, in yeah. that, right, that the, 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 skull, the skull brain is not rooted in the body, but the brain is, the nervous system is, is rooted throughout the body, like the roots of a tree. And it's interesting because Stephen Harrod Buner talks about, in Plant Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm, he talks about sentience a lot in terms of everything from trees to single-cell yes. organisms, right, and, and the way... It goes into great detail with citations from scientific papers, like just like demonstrating that each of these things are sentient by our broad definition of it. And that, um, but that with trees, people assume the trees don't have a brain, hmm. right? Because of course, everything is got to be just like us to be meaningful, right? And so, but it's an entirely different structure. It's not even in the same kingdom of life as we divide it up in binomial nomenclatures in the plant kingdom as opposed to the animal kingdom. And we're trying to hold it to this structure of, well, it can't be intelligent because it doesn't have a brain. Well, it's not even an animal. Like, can we look at it on its terms instead of ours, perhaps? And so one of the things he points out is trees don't need a skull because half of their structure is contained in the earth. It's like a skull protects the soft tissue of the brain, right? Well, a tree doesn't need that. It's got the, it's, it's, it's in the earth. And so there's this entire core. He's referring to the root system as a cortical structure, as a, as a, as a nervous structure, essentially as the, the, uh, the equivalent of the brain of the skull brain for a tree. But of course, that system is also distributed throughout the, the, up, the upper, the above ground portion of the tree as well, just as our nervous system is distributed throughout our entire uh, physical forms. And the notion of like sophistication of neural networks and information passing back and forth, like, you know, and yeah. we can talk about the relationship with fungi and, and, and other things beneath the surface and how sophisticated and complex a network that is. And then we talk about how sophisticated the human brain is. Well, it maybe starts to pale in comparison, um, in certain yeah, ways. And, and, and our internet, uh, has, yeah, so our technology has got it this far, but they, they are telepathics from all around the world. They can communicate with every tree in the world, right? We got it that far yet. Yeah. Still using training wheels. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and Helena and myself, we talk a lot about limits and, and boundaries and things like that. And what is the boundary of being in a place? The no mobility boundary is, it has been for their, for their evolution 
a key, fundamental key to, to get to that intelligence, to tap to that intelligence and, and, and develop it with, with everything else that they are in relation with, with the air, with the soil, with the fungi, with the fungi, with everything else being in a way <laughs> that life itself depends on that relationship. A useful constraint. Yeah. <laughs> For everyone yeah. in the planet. Yeah. I mean, it makes, go ahead. No, mm -hmm. go ahead. Well, it just, it just, it makes me think of something else Buner talks about in that same book where, um, the way trees create rain, the way forests create rain, right? And so, um, through transpiration and, and, and it's a complex process, of course, but that, but that there is this, um, you know, talk about having something to learn from somebody, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, uh, that's something that we, we, we never even consider that possibility because no, we hate, we hate ourselves place. sweating. Right, 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 right. Well, and we don't think that when we cut down a forest, we lose the rain. Like we don't see the connection because we're not in relationship with either in any meaningful way. We're just trying to stay out of the rain and, you know, all that. Um, so it's not even just, you know, what the trees have to teach us. You know, one thing trees have to teach us is relationship um, with, with fungi, with each other underground, how they communicate, how they negotiate, all these things, cooperate, and, and also with relationship with the atmosphere and with the cycle, which, cause that is the cycle, right? Transpiration is cyclical. Um, that's why they make the rain to bring the water down that then the water can come back up. Right. And I was in, in therapy today and we were speaking about breath and heartbeat and, and, and whatnot. And, and Dominic was saying that, you know, if our skin was transparent and, and like everything was, if we were see-through, it would be like impossible not to see how as above, so below that type of where like shit we're an intricate system it's like and everything works together and and i'm just thinking it's the same thing we don't see the tree because it's not see we don't see um you know these uh, i you know i'm i have a master's in biology and i didn't take that much of the green stuff but enough you know plant physiology these fantastic cells on the underside of the leaves that open up uh, i don't know what they're calling in stomata is it stomata yeah precisely you know that open up they look like a vagina mm -hmm. they look like a yoni when they open up um and release vapor and you know it's like pattern pattern yes and how again how blinding it is to kind of rely on sight or 
touch, you know, rather than, than can we use all of our senses? Can we, you know, start to be in kinship with the tree? Then we would kind of figure out that, yeah, something is happening here. And yeah, it might be a, you know, valid pattern interrupt. Like she points to in braiding sweetgrass. Sweetgrass grows best if somebody comes and harvests half of it because that's the pattern disrupt they need to have room to live. Right? So it's not, you cannot ever bring down a tree. It's like, but we need to do it in kinship. What happens if it is done in kinship rather than I'm here and you're over there and I need you. It's like kind of in that blind way or not like stepping out of the relationship. Yeah. Uh, that no, is I, there. It is there. It cannot not be there. It is there. Yeah, it happens. What it happens is responsibility. We don't want that. And I'm also a wholeness <laughs> optimistic. But um, in the sense, today I was, I was speaking with Meg and, and she said, yeah, they are awakened, have, are having a hard time living. And I said, yeah, I don't want to be part of the non-awakening. Awaken. So... I am hopeful and, and optimistic even, or, or I have hope because I see both realities. Mm. I'm aware enough and I'm, I'm very little aware, <laughs> but I'm aware enough to see how we are becoming plastic uh, through our body. And also I'm aware enough to, to see and to, to be related with trees in another way and to, to see people who are related with nature in another way and to see how that is becoming more and more also. Synesthesia is coming up for me in terms of this stuff because there's, and I think it maybe ties a few things together, is um, relationship with place and uh, the role of sensory perception and so what um, does synesthesia mean synesthesia is um generally referred to as uh it, it's when the senses get mixed up or blended right so it happens to a lot of people when they're on using hallucinogenic drugs or um can happen um it, what's interesting is that it it, it is a it it seems as though really it's it's actually uh, a natural phenomenon that we've gotten away from, uh, and and because David Abram talks about it in terms of relationship with with an animate world and an or, or, or oral culture, Stephen Herod Buner talks about it in terms of um, holistic living systems and nonlinear dynamics, and um, for example, 
and I'm thinking about it in terms of being in relationship with the world, with a living world and, and in a, in a, with the intention of taking responsibility basically. So, so like, so the, the, like, I want to make the world a better place. Um, but I know that's not just up to me. Like I need to receive instruction. I need to, you know, I need to know what the world wants me to do. And I mean, don't mean the the people world, the human world. I mean, like the living world, you know, what, what my job is as a part of the living world. Um, and how do I do that? How do I, like, how do I find out what the world wants, has to tell me? Like, I can't read that in a book, right? I mean, and, and so how do I go about doing that? And so, but Buner talks about, he uses the example of juggling as a, as a, um, example of a, I don't know if he refers to it as a living system, a self-organizing system, but it's, but it's a, it's a system is created when a juggler succeeds in keeping all the balls in the air. Um, and, and what happens then is this, um, the perceptual reality of that is you can't think your way into juggling, right? You can't, you know, this is not a, this is not a linear, like, okay, like keep track of which ball comes next. Like the blue ball and the red ball, my right hand, my left hand, like all those balls are going to be on the ground long ago, right? Like you just can't do it that way. Um, just like Wynton Marsalis can't improvise a solo while he's thinking about scales, right? Like he, he would never have, gotten a recording contract. It's, it's be, he's beyond that, you know? And so, um, but what happened, what Buner points to is that when, when this is happening, when you've got three balls in the air or five balls in the air or three chainsaws and a bowling pin or whatever it is that, um, you've had to surrender to something larger than your prefrontal cortex tracking everything, right? right. <laughs> you know, this is a nonlinear thing that you're now a part of. Right. And you, you, you maybe play a central role, like you're the one with the hands or whatever, but that, um, but that, but that you're not driving it, like that you're, you're in, you're responding now. And, and, and he describes that as, as, as a synesthetic experience is because what's happening is there's this holistic felt perception is how you're navigating that successfully. That's nonlinear. That's synesthetic. It's, it doesn't, you're, you're taking in this whole sophisticated you're it's he's talk, also talking about sensory gating so that your your sensory gating mechanisms begin to open up which is also what happens to people on hallucinogens it's why it's like oh my god i see patterns everywhere or you're overwhelmed you can't drive when you're on acid or whatever you shouldn't um but that <laughs> even though you know this actually albert hoffman had to ride the bicycle home <laughs> because the company car wasn't available on the the world's very first human trip on lsd um but uh, point being though, that in terms of taking responsibility, being in relationship in a responsible way with the living world, um, this is a skill to cultivate. This is a way of being in the world. This is a, a perceptual skill to cultivate that is part and parcel of being in an oral culture in relationship with the living world that we have lost or that each of us were born into a world that had left that behind. And so now this is something we have to, I don't know what the right word is, reclaim, you know, find again, develop for ourselves. Um, but to, but it's about receiving instruction. And I think that the body is, is the, is the key to that. Like the dropping out of cognitive awareness into perceptual awareness. Buner talks about analogical thinking, which sounds suspiciously like abductive process when he describes it, but that's beyond my ken. But, um, 
anyway, I just think that's an interesting sort there's there's something useful there for me yeah. in terms of understanding this. And I'm glad and I'm glad you refers to uh, responsibility in that way because I, I really don't want to be misunderstood when I speak about responsibility. But the responsibility that is uh, you know, the flagellation of the yeah. of the skin because I I I have seen it's not that I'm not talking about that responsibility at all. It's that the capacity, the limitless capacity of responding. Yeah, precisely. Well said. And he, he uh, uh, Tyson speaks about how, like, he knew some Danish Vikings now that go to Brazil to, to get Didn't into, fare? to, yeah, I don't know. He doesn't mention who and that point, but goes to other cultures, goes to other people to get to the processes because the artifacts remains. These are the 10 gods and here's a sword and. You know, you have Yggdrasil and, 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 you know, Valhall and all of that. But what's the processes? And not what's our processes, because they're gone. But what are a process that would allow me to open up, be in communion with, talk to, relate to, be kinship with? And, and, and like, so the processes are kind of the, the life force of all of this. The other stuff is the artifacts. It's like, that's what happened. But without the, the life force of it, they wouldn't be. It didn't start. Here's the five gods. It was the, the life force of it is what spawned these five gods. It's the process of learning to see the moon without the finger. Yeah. And, and it's, he taught, he has a good way of, I don't remember his exact phrase, but he talks about how they're not, um, I mean, he doesn't even word, use the word appropriation, I don't think, but he's saying they're not taking, exporting the culture of these people they visit. They're learning what it's for. They're learning what their own artifacts are for and how to use them in their mm -hmm. own way. So there is this fundamental principle essentially as opposed yeah. to anything on the surface yeah i think of it as like seeking to create the conditions for an appropriate culture to emerge like a responsible culture a culture that is is appropriately responsive to the world as it is in this moment that can change as it needs to change as the conditions change and thus the response must as well but it's mm -hmm. again it's that way of learning not to rely on the finger Mm -hmm. pointing at the moon, but instead to learn to be in relationship, to develop one's own ability to see the moon without that point. You know what, guys? This is our fifth conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so lucky though, because I know that we will be continuing to talk because we do and we did before and we will. Um, it has been a pleasure. 
Yeah, it really has been to have a dedicated space for the conversation that emerges between us three, because we have a lot of overlap in other spaces and also a lot of, you know, that doesn't overlap. Yeah. Uh, so there's something in particular that happens in this conversation that's been really wonderful to have a, a place to explore that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you've seen, I will, I will make sure that we can find one time or two times where we get together with the other people from season two and, and just share a little bit of that, you know, what has happened, what's it felt like, what's, you know, what's popping. Um, There's, um it yep. was such a treat to do that with the first season. And like you say, Matthew, like something else happens in when you put somebody else in the conversation and still there, it actually was kind of sitting around a campfire where there's something that we do share that is kind of the starting point for, for a conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. I wanted, I also wanted to say thank you, Helena, for open this space to me, to us. Because it's, it's reclaimed to ways that you cannot imagine. So, yeah. I'm yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And I'd like to echo that. Um, cause I'm, uh, I'm exceedingly grateful for this opportunity to, this is something new for me, um, to, to do this in a public way. That's what's about it. Um. Because of course we've had conversations for some time now, but um, because that is also something that brings, that's also in the room with us. Essentially, that's a, like a party to the conversation. Is the fact that it's not private, that it will be shared, um, and it brings in a different perspective for me on what it is I'm saying, what it is I'm hearing, um, that is not. You know, it's something new. It's not present in a private conversation. Um, and it's also for me a part of the process of becoming visible in the world. Um, that is on one level, just in terms of like my name is on a podcast episode description somewhere on the internet, that kind of visible, but also just in terms of my own sense of self in relationship with other, this is separate and not separate from, from that other process. And so it's been a really significant uh, sort of moment, um, in, mm. in that process for me, that's, it's a really significant contribution, which is sort of maybe a similar to what Emma, you're saying in terms of ripples, um, yeah. cause there's that as well. Yeah. I'm very, very grateful to you both. Yeah. It's like, like my grandma giving me the box of chocolates, making sure that everyone else in the room got a chocolate. Yeah. And as yeah. you've brought us back to where we started today so elegantly, <laughs> I want to add as a attributive footnote that um, uh, I was puzzling over where I had come across gift culture as a phrase because I knew it was recent. And at first I thought you had said it when you told your story and maybe you did, but since you commented on it, maybe you didn't. But I did realize that, um, that I heard that just last night in a comment from Steve Emery. 
Um, so to give credit where credit's due, I was only repeating that phrase, but I do like it as well. Yeah. Culture versus economy. Yeah. Lovely. Well, it is now raining. The trees have done their job. <laughs> and I have choir practice in half an hour, which I'm looking forward to. Enjoy. So, yeah, I will enjoy and thank you. See you soon. Yes. I look forward to the next conversation, whatever context that yep. occurs. It won't be long. That's the only thing I know. It won't be long. <laughs> Perfect.